Hello and welcome to this month's edition of the Frontline Gastroenterology Podcast. My name is James Morris, trainee editor at The Journal. I'm particularly excited about this month's edition, partly as a much needed break away from the coronavirus crisis, which is rightly occupying much of our professional and personal energy at the moment, but also because we'll be discussing a topic particularly close to my heart, palliative care in liver disease. So therefore, it's with great pleasure that I welcome Hazel Woodland and Ben Hudson today to discuss their recent review published in Frontline Gastroenterology, entitled Palliative Care in Liver Disease, What Does Good Look Like? Hazel and Ben, thank you so much for joining me today. Thanks for having us. Yeah, thanks for having us. Firstly, uh, could you just give us a brief overview of the history of palliative care in this country and how services are generally structured today? So palliative care as a specialty has evolved a lot since it developed in the 1960s, um, where it evolved from the hospice movement. And it was first of all really referred to as terminal care. Um, So care for patients who are just at the end of their life. Um, And in fact, it sort of evolved to being a care for more for patients with symptom control issues related to cancer once their chemotherapy or therapeutic options hadn't worked. So it was initially in its evolution reserved for patients who were just at the end of their life. However, certainly over the last 10 to 15 years, it's evolved as something that can work in parallel um, to curative treatment. Um, And the WHO uh, describes palliative care as an approach to improve quality of life of patients um, who and, and families who have life-threatening illnesses um, that does not necessarily um, increase their quantity of life, but focuses on their physical, uh, psychosocial and spiritual needs. So it's, it's a, uh, the purpose of palliative care is really focusing on quality of life rather than quantity. Um, and again, initially it was just for patients uh, with cancer, but certainly over the last 15 years, um, it's evolved to recognise symptom and palliative care needs in patients with, with non-malignant uh, disease, um, which is obviously very relevant for patients with end-stage liver disease. What it's not is a service that's, or a specialty that's um, required when curative options are completely exhausted. And also what it's not is something that is done completely separately from general care. So there are specialists in palliative care who focus on um, patients who have very complex symptom and control and issues or um, very complex psychosocial issues um, with a life-limiting illness. However, that input can't be offered for all patients who have a life-limiting illness. And so general palliative care skills are sort of central to all Um, doctors and nurses looking after patients with chronic or life-limiting illnesses and it's not a term that is mutually exclusive to to curative um, care so often when there's um, conditions like liver disease when trajectory is uncertain um, it can it is something that ideally runs in parallel so yes palliative care really has evolved um, from just terminal care to concentrating more on symptoms and quality of life um, at an earlier stage in the disease trajectory and has certainly evolved from something that was really just for patients with, with malignancy to all patients um, with, with life-limiting illnesses. You mentioned disease trajectories there a couple of times and I think that's a really interesting concept in the area of palliative care. 
Could you just explain how different disease trajectories um, compare and how that impacts how we prognosticate in different disease settings and the impact therefore that has on how we deliver palliative care in different conditions? Um, yeah, so I think it's fair to say that um, uh, in patients with non-malignant conditions it can be more difficult to predict prognosis. Um, in patients who've got cancer, um, frailty or, or dementia, uh, they tend to follow a more linear pattern of decline. Um, but in patients with chronic liver disease, heart failure, COPD, they often have uh, repeated episodes of sudden deterioration, um, but that can be then followed by recovery almost back to baseline. Um, but then on, on one of those episodes of decompensation, um, the, the patient can die, and, and that can be really unpredictable. So I think most people that look after patients with liver disease will, will know of examples of people who've died on their first admission to hospital with decompensated liver disease. And then they'll also have patients who present multiple times over a period of years with um, episodes of encephalopathy or um, variceal bleeds. And that can make it really difficult to sort of give patients an individual idea of, of their prognosis. Um, but I think in general terms, we know that uh, in patients who've got chronic liver disease, uh, once they do develop decompensated um, cirrhosis, the average prognosis is around two years. And that does vary considerably depending on whether there's kind of ongoing damage to the liver with, with continued alcohol intake. Um, but you know, an episode of decompensation certainly should prompt clinicians to start thinking about um, having advanced care planning discussions if they've not already occurred. Um, and then there are you know, particular complications that indicate a, a worse prognosis. So patients with resistant ascites and median survivals around six months. Um, renal syndrome has got a 90 day mortality of about 60%. Um, and then, you know, as already mentioned, with patients on the transplant waiting list, about 20% of them will die each year. So um, I think just because someone's in that pathway to have a potentially curative operation, um, it doesn't mean that they won't benefit from, um, you know, from, from palliative care uh, and advanced care planning discussions. Um, and I think in terms of delivery of, of palliative care, if you wait until the point when a patient deteriorates um, to have discussions about advanced care planning and goals of care, then you can be doing it at quite a, an emotionally charged time. Um, patients might not be in a, a position to have uh, discussions about you know, complex health needs. Um, and then it can be left to, to carers have those conversations when they, they may not even have realised how unwell the patient was. Um, I think when patients and relatives hear that someone's got cancer, they kind of know that something serious, chronic liver disease or cirrhosis doesn't necessarily mean that much to, um, to people. So I think you can't assume that your patients know that a diagnosis of cirrhosis means that they've got this potentially life-limiting condition. So we Benzer mentioned the, the concept of general versus specialist palliative care and having conversations about prognosis um, and, and progression of, of the illness is something that, that generalists can do and that is part of, of palliative care. So just explaining to patients the difference between compensated cirrhosis and decompensated cirrhosis and preparing them and the family for the possibility of sudden deterioration can be really helpful um, later on down the line so they, they are at least aware early of, of how the disease can progress. 
I think the, the term that's quite a lot is um, hoping for the best and planning for the worst. Yes. So we've got a patient who is decompensated and we know their prognosis is poor. Um, we begin having that discussion with the patient and the families about the medium and long-term outlook. And of course, as Ben said at the beginning, one of the main goals of palliative care is to initiate those discussions and then to manage symptoms. You, you touched, Hazel, on a few of the symptoms that liver disease patients develop. And perhaps I wonder if you can expand on that and what the main um, areas of symptom control that need to be managed in patients with decompensated liver disease in the later stages of their disease trajectory. So the syndrome of, of decompensated advanced chronic liver disease or decompensated cirrhosis comes with a heavy symptom burden as part of the disease. And a lot of the significant symptoms of chronic liver disease are, and good palliative care in liver disease also reflect good chronic disease management and good general hepatology. So the two aren't highly different entities. So there's the classic features of um, decompensation. I mean, encephalopathy comes out consistently in quality studies and qualitative research as the feature that is most distressing to patients and relatives. And sometimes the treatment of that in terms of laxative medications and lactulose can, can cause an increase in those symptoms. And so often we're finding that sort of earlier use of, of medications like rifaximin has been helpful when the treatment can also cause a symptomatic burden. Ascites is obviously the most common decompensating event in chronic liver disease and there's been a lot of work looking at how symptom control and quality of life can be optimised with ascites, certainly around um, having responsive ambulatory units for day case uh, paracentesis, and indeed other complications of chronic liver disease that are often run by specialist nurses that develop a relationship with patients. Um, and also, you know, coming increasingly as the use of longer term abdominal drains. Um, features of sarcoma and malnutrition um, can affect energy levels, can contribute into their encephalopathy and parasites, and a good multidisciplinary input in terms of early dietetic response can have important symptomatic as well as sort of prognostic benefits. So again, it's this concept that palliative care and good hepatology are really two sides of the same coin. Um, a lot of the symptom control management is not a mutually exclusive. Um, the other things we don't see so much of, um, probably because we don't ask. So there was the support study in the States in the sort of 2000s that looked at symptom burden in patients with a range of, of life-limiting conditions. Um, so sexual dysfunctions almost ubiquitous amongst relatively young males who have chronic liver disease, a dyspnea, myalgia, chronic breathlessness, all of those things are very common symptoms, not necessarily things people volunteer, um, but issues that perhaps as hepatologists, because they're not so central to the general disease management, we don't address as much as we could. And in addressing these features, um, you know, this is, becomes a team sport and input from allied healthcare professionals is really essential in managing someone's breathlessness uh, managing how people manage around the house, people manage their daily lives. We're often not the best place professionals to do that. So a sort of wider approach can often help in those 
cases and a sort of more thorough exploration of symptoms beyond the kind of classic features of decompensation can reveal that really the physical symptom burden in, in chronic liver disease is exceptionally high. And also in chronic liver disease, our patients often come from, from complex psychosocial groups and the rates of depression and anxiety and um, difficult psychological burdens in liver disease are higher than for almost any other life-limiting disease. And how we, as a sort of team specialty and a multidisciplinary specialty, address those needs is perhaps uh, some something of a blind spot for us as well. So um, both of you, you discuss the importance of getting our nomenclature right in the paper and how palliative care is not synonymous with end-of-life care. Can you just explain the difference of those two terms please? Yeah I think that's a good question. Uh, I think one of the problems is that the official definition um, of end-of-life care probably isn't what most clinicians and um, the public would think of. Um, so, strictly speaking, um, the NHS guidance is that, that people are considered to be approaching the end of life when they're likely to die within the next 12 months, um, although they acknowledge it is difficult to predict that. Um, but that does include people whose death is imminent, but also people who've got an advanced um, incurable illness such as um, liver disease. Um, I think the reality is for most clinicians um, and the public, end-of-life care refers to um, care given to patients who are deteriorating fairly rapidly um, and who are you know, obviously about to die where um, the trajectory is a little bit more predictable um, and that's often the time when people do feel more comfortable having conversations about um, dying and, and involving palliative care teams but the reality is leaving it to that point is often too late to really optimise care plans and um, ensure that, that patients and carers have the opportunity to get their affairs in order. Um, and I think at that point it tends to focus more on symptom control um, and trying to manage patient and care wishes for how and where they are going to die. Um, whereas palliative care essentially means focusing on quality of life, as Ben said, um, so looking at the whole person um, and their goals and priorities and needs um, rather than just focusing on a, a particular illness. Um, and that really can be provided at any time to people with a, a terminal condition um, or even people with a, a potentially condition um, and so as we've said it can be provided by generalists uh, and I think you know examples in liver disease um, you know palliative care might just mean looking at, at what services um, might benefit patients from a from a social point of view a lot of the time the things that worry our patients maybe social issues related to, to benefits or um, things outside of their their health problem um, whilst we can't manage that as clinicians we can try and help point people in the right direction um, and it might also mean um, having conversations about the pros and cons of, of ongoing surveillance um, for things like um, HCC um, for most people that that's going to be appropriate but then for some people the sort of burden of coming up for six monthly ultrasound scans might be kind of quite arduous and, and costly for them um, and potentially unnecessary um, so it's really just thinking about the whole person um, and, and not just the illness. That's really helpful distinction, um, Hazel. Can I just then draw us on to the concept of how we implement uh, some of this into our practice? I think you mentioned uh, a few times in previous answers that there's this ideal of what should be done, but perhaps it's not always uh, the reality. Um, what would you say are some of the main barriers of implementing effective palliative care and end-of-life care 
um, into the delivery of care to patients with liver disease in practice? Yeah, I mean, I think the key barrier is still this underlying concept that curative and active care and palliative care are two mutually distinct entities and you can't start palliative care, advanced care planning, symptom control until you've exhausted absolutely every curative option. And palliative care, because of its evolution, has become associated with um, this feeling that either the physician or the patient is in some way giving up and it's not enhancing their life and supporting their um, disease. So for palliative care to have its biggest input, it needs to be instituted at an early enough phase so it doesn't represent end-of-life care. And this, this this concept of what palliative care is and what it means both to physicians but also how patients respond to it is, I think, um, very important. There's still an association uh, with malignancy um, and there's still therefore a reluctance of physicians to introduce it and uh, perhaps that's partly because of how we explain it to our patients and how we explain what palliative care actually means um, and how it can can support their life as, a, as opposed to it being something that's mutually exclusive to their normal care. Um, I think also in certainly in liver disease, how we actually provide uh, palliative care pragmatically, what our models for care are, how we do treat patients differently once we've set up palliative care services and what the optimum structure for those services looks like is something that we haven't quite determined as a specialty, how that that makes it up into sort of designing ideal models for, for palliative care within hepatology is still something that is evolving. Um, so I think the, the big barrier is the concept of the, the fear of physicians of introducing a term where they're still trying to do something, you know, curative or disease modifying the fear of how their patients will perceive them. And also that kind of perception that patients get with the term palliative that um, it means their sort of physician is is giving up on them which is which is misplaced um, but also the the fact that we need to you know develop models for what optimum palliative care looks like so drawing on that answer uh, both of you um, your paper is really helpfully illustrated with a number of examples of how hospitals have developed novel clinical services to manage palliative care in patients with liver disease. Could you just give us a flavour of what some hospitals are doing on this front? Yeah, so there's lots of really exciting work um, going on in this area um, and there's some great examples of, of novel approaches to designing services. So I think unfortunately the main thing that you probably do have to accept if um, this is something that, that your centre wants to look into is that it does take time. Um, Unfortunately, it's not possible to tell someone that they've, they've got a life-limiting condition, talk about what that means and, and what the, the future might look like in a 15-minute appointment. Um, so uh, I think the, the thing that all of these centres have in common is that they, they acknowledge that um, by spending that time at, at the beginning, it may mean that you, you save time elsewhere by, I suppose, empowering patients to, to manage their symptoms, maybe reduce the number of admissions. Um, and also make it easier for colleagues when patients do come in because a lot of the work has been already done. Um, so I think it's really a case of just working out who's going to provide that service, who's going to have those conversations. So um, there's different approaches. The Royal Free have um, employed a, an inpatient palliative care nurse who's background in, in hepatology that works on the wards um, alongside 
team to identify patients um, who may benefit from a holistic assessment and, and look at what you know what services they might benefit from um, both during the inpatient stay and also um, when they're discharged um, and then the Plymouth Thinking Ahead Clinic again is um, utilizing the MDT to um, identify patients and then giving them the opportunity to have a an extended hour-long appointment um, with a, a nurse consultant to again just you know have that holistic assessment um, and work out what might be helpful at that time and also what might be available in the future um, and then in Basildon um, they've been working on this for quite a long time and they've got something called the shared care liver project where again it's a case of identifying patients who might benefit from from this service um, from the hepatology um, department but then they're, they're given the opportunity to um, attend a holistic assessment at the hospice and then be referred to the services both within the hospice, for example, the, the day hospice programme, or um, gain access to care support, social services. Um, and that's been, you know, a really well-received model locally. Um, and then also there's other projects which really acknowledge the, the need to liaise with the community services, um, partly to you know, help avoid unnecessary admissions by I guess providing um, support and clear guidance to GPs about you know how to manage these patients, um, but also often having a point of contact at the hospital so um, that some of those decisions can be made with that support from the specialist. But in Worthing, they've got a community liver nurse who works between the hospital, the hospice, and the community um, to sort of coordinate uh, patient care. I mean, the problem is that it's really difficult to measure impact of these services. Place of death is quite a controversial measure of quality of end of life care. And we don't really have time to go into that today. But you know, we do know that 70 to 80 percent of patients with chronic liver disease die in hospital, which is much higher than for other conditions. Um, and the data from Plymouth and Worthing certainly suggests that with better advanced care planning done earlier, um, it is possible to reduce the number of, of patients dying in hospital, um, which is, is probably better both in terms of meeting patient and carer wishes and also um, from an economic point of view. Um, so I think it is really important to, to try and get more information about the impact of these services that is going to help other centres um, putting together business cases. Um, but I think something that everybody can do um, is utilise resources that are available. So um, British Liver Trust have got uh, a really good leaflet on called Thinking Ahead, um, which helps to open up those conversations with patients um, and also setting up a, a decompensated liver disease MDT. I think Ben probably can talk about that in a bit more detail because they've got a really good one in Exeter. Um, so we can maybe talk about how that looks in practice. Yeah, it'd be great to hear that, Ben. And perhaps yeah, drawing some of those threads together, uh, which Hazel mentioned just there, what would you say for someone listening who sees a real gap in the service they're delivering for their patients with end-stage liver disease and wants to uh, develop uh, and improve their service what would you say would be the main initial steps they need to take uh, to to do that I think the main issue is that patients are identified as being someone approaching the end of their life far too late and beyond which helpful interventions aren't uh, they've sort of missed the boat if you will um, so I think having a robust system to identify patients who are at risk of dying within the next one to two years. So in Exeter, we discuss that every patient that their first decompensation or new HCC 
um, in, a, in a monthly one hour meeting, which we have attended by a palliative care physician, an occupational therapist, a physiotherapist, uh, a dietitian, um, hepatologists in, it, in our specialty nurses. So that the sort of quality of life interventions, which can range from some OT help for a patient with ascites getting up the stairs or some respiratory physiotherapy for patients that are struggling with breathlessness or some support with filling out uh, benefits forms to, for people who have made jobless because of their um, condition or looking for sort of financial support. I think the first, before you can do any of that stuff, you need to have a system for identifying it. So there are screening tools available, but it doesn't have to be that complex. I think once a patient has decompensated, then this should certainly be part of the part of the conversation. And I think establishing an MDT and recognising that this is this is not something we can do as individuals. This is something that um, is a team sport and that, that needs our, our colleagues in physiotherapy and palliative medicine, potentially um, occupational therapy. Um, and so it doesn't take a huge amount of extra resource. It's one hour a month for us. We're a hospital serving about half a million people. And we discuss sort of seven or eight patients each month. I think investing time and effort in good ambulatory services, certainly for patients with refractory ascites, is an important step. Patients do much better if they're engaged in a day case unit and there's significant cost benefits from that. Um, and equally looking at other more novel um, symptom control interventions such as long-term abdominal drains for centres that have that facility. Certainly Sumita Verma and Mankey Corrigan have, have done lots of work around that and I think that's something that's evolving. But also having some facilities, as Hazel mentioned, to afford patients an opportunity of advanced care planning and discussing what they would like and how they'd like to, to, so they're involved in some way in decisions around their care in terms of future decompensating episodes. And there's some facility to document that advanced care plan um, on an electronic system or the patient's notes such that when they are admitted to hospital, the team don't have to reinvent the wheel. Um, so yeah, I think I would say, Finding a system that you routinely screen patients for uncertain prognosis or poor prognosis, establishing a, a small MDT, investing and time and effort in good ambulatory services to reduce hospital admissions as much as is feasible, and to having facilities that you can document um, advanced care planning discussions and make those available to wider members of your hepatology or gastroenterology teams is a good sort of step to get this going. I think focusing at the very end of life, you miss a lot of potential benefit earlier on. Um, and the, like I've said a, a few times before, the recognition that palliative care is part of chronic liver disease management. It's not managing the end of the life, it's managing a patient with advanced chronic liver disease. And moving to that recognition of palliative care, not being end of life care is a really important starting point. Well, both thank you so much uh, for what has been an incredibly uh, thought-provoking and informative discussion today. And you provide us with a lot of very practical tips, actually, to uh, improve the care of patients with liver disease locally. So thank you very much indeed for joining me. And thank you for writing such a, a fantastic paper for the journal. And if you're listening to this podcast today, I really do encourage you to uh, go to the Frontline Gastroenterology website and download this paper. Um, and have a good uh, read of its contents, which will flesh out uh, some of what we've talked about today. Uh, so Hazel, thank you very much uh, indeed for joining us. 
um, and do tune in to the Frontline Gastroenterology podcast next month. Goodbye.